Imagine trying to put together the pieces of a puzzle with over 900 million pieces. And you've got no idea what the finished product should look like. To clarify, I don't mean assembling these 900 million pieces without looking at the picture on the box. I mean, there is no picture on the box. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and in this episode of Branch Out, I have a chat with Stephanie Chen. She's a talented and passionate researcher completing her PhD at the Australian Institute of Botanical Science and the University of New South Wales. Now, Steph recently led a project to assemble the genome of the iconic New South Wales Waratah species. The world first research was published in the Journal of Molecular Ecology Resources earlier this year. Keep listening to understand what exactly a genome is and how assembling one helps scientists understand a species' past in order to protect its future. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining me here in the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney Library on a rainy day. Um, but you're looking very bright and colourful. I'm loving uh, your shirt. Yeah, so you seem to have a real uh, passion for plants. But before we dive into that, um, can you just maybe tell me, you're, you're completing a PhD at the Australian Institute of Botanical Science and UNSW. So can you tell us about your area of research and, and what it involves, just to give people that kind of overview? Yeah, sure. So my research um, is in the fields of bioinformatics and plant genomics, and I um, sequence plant DNA of mostly of um, native Australian species to better understand how they evolved. So looking at um, how these populations looked like in the past and also using that genomic information to understand how can we best conserve them so we can have them um, into the future. And I, one of the things I really like about my work is the variety of things I get to do. Like my research involves field work, so going out to national parks to collect um, these plant specimens that we can then um, sequence. And I also do a bit of molecular work here um, in the molecular laboratory, so extracting DNA from those plant tissues that we've collected in the field. And um, a big part of my work is computational, so the bioinformatics parts uh, where I write code um, to basically take this big complex data and distill it down to kind of the key messages and things we want to know and make sense of all this DNA and sequence data. Oh man, that sounds like awesome variety, like getting to go out and then also kind of having that, because that can be draining too, like doing, you can't do like back-to-back -back field work. so being able to then come and have that office time, lab time as well, um, that must be really awesome. Yeah, definitely, like, you know, it's a great feeling when you, after a really hard, long day's work of in the field, um, you know, you have this esky full of plant samples all nice and labelled, um, and you kind of, you know, you know you're going to get some good data um, back out of that once you get back into the office and sit down at your computer and kind of look at all these DNA sequences that are in the plants. Um, I thought you were going somewhere else with that when you're like, after a hard-earned, like a hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. <laughs> like that's, and you're esky, like that's what I was thinking. 
<laughs> yeah, I think uh, a lot of botanists definitely like to wind down at the end of the day at the, you know, maybe around the field campfire or something like that. Yep. Oh, that sounds awesome. So um, I'm keen to know what interests you in plants in the first place and kind of how you ended up on this particular career path. I mean, for some people, it's a really defining moment or a person. Others just seem to like fall into it and realize they're really good at it. So maybe just take us through that kind of journey for you. So I remember when I was really young, I was always really interested in plants, learning the different names, what they look like, what they're used for, that kind of thing. And I grew up surrounded by quite a lot of bushland um, and my grandmother would take me foraging all the time. Um, So I think um, that really cemented my love of plants when I was really young. Um, And I enjoyed science at school and I thought, you know, scientific research might be a good career fit so I started going down that road. I remember as a kid I'd go to the library and read New Scientist magazines and I'd go to Dr Carl's talks and things so that interest from when I was really young led me into looking um, at university degrees and pathways that would let me study plant science so I saw that the University of Sydney offered a major in plant science and then I did my honours year Um, which is a research year and I modelled plant populations looking at genetics and the seed bank and how that influences how you parameterise models when you're looking at these um, plant populations. And then after that, um, you know, kind of because at that point I definitely knew I wanted to keep going on in research, so the PhD was the way to do that and that's where I am now. Okay, so you led the sequencing of the genome for a New South Wales Waratah species. So before we dive into that groundbreaking research that was published earlier this year, um, just tell us more about the species um, itself, you know, uh, I mean, what it looks like and just some cool little interesting things about it that is quite distinct. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the New South Wales Waratah, that's its common name, its scientific name is Tilopia speciosissima. And um, the name Waratah comes from the Eora Aboriginal people, the original inhabitants of the Sydney area where the plant is found, um, and it means red flowering tree. So Tilopia is from the Greek word Tilopos, which means seen from afar. And speciosissima is from Latin meaning most showy. And you really get a sense of that when you're out in the bush, say at Royal National Park, they have a really nice trail where you can see waratahs in the springtime. You can spot it from really far away and you go, oh, I know that's a waratah. It's magnificent. And um, they have these lovely flower heads, which um, are called an inflorescence, comprising of many individual flowers in a really striking crimson colour. And yeah, the Waratahs, you know, have been adopted as names for sporting teams, logos, things like that. So you see them all around um, the state in particular. And I guess if morphologically it has pods of winged seeds, it's pollinated by birds. And um, I've heard that the new National Herbarium of New South Wales, that building design is inspired by the Waratah seed pod. Yeah, so I mean, that probably already answered my next question like why you chose this particular project for your PhD Um, but maybe you can elaborate on that a bit more because I mean it's so iconic like it's Mm -hmm. that would be such a cool um, 
thing to be able to attach your research to. But yeah, maybe just elaborate more on you know what what led you to um, sequence the genome of this species. Yeah, sure. So the Waratah reference genome that um, is part of an initiative by BioPlatforms Australia called Genomics for Australian Plants, which aims to you know generate. Uh, reference genomes and other genomic resources to generate a fundamental understanding of our native plants. Um, and the Waratah was actually um, one of the three pilot species selected as part of that project. Um, and I had heard about a project called Earth Biogenome, which is a crazy ambitious project to sequence all eukaryotic life on Earth. So, okay, let's well, stop you there. What's what is that? You're, you're, I can't even say it. All, um, <laughs> all living things on Earth. All basically. okay. Well, that, it just means all living things, except for bacteria and archaea. So oh, they're not in that. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Animals, plants, fungi. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Cool. Sorry. Yeah. Keep going. So I heard about that project and I thought, wow, that's that's crazy and also so cool. So it'd be amazing to contribute to that. Um, so I like, I really like that my research combines kind of these genomic resources and then looking at both aspects of evolution and plant conservation. Yeah, and so we might um, talk about that a bit later, yeah. but just, um, you know, so what, what, what threats, uh, if any, does this particular species face? I mean, you'd think being so iconic, like, <laughs> you know, it'd be well, you know, looked after, but does, does it, does it have anything kind of, you know, um, threatening it at the moment or in the past? Mm -hmm. So in terms of um, waratahs, there are particular diseases that um, impact it. And also, of course, the shifting climate is causing the geographic range that the waratah is able to live in to shift over time. And that will continue to happen. And um, that's something our research can help look into. Um, the other aspect is kind of the horticultural aspect. So waratahs um, are also important for the cut flower industry and also horticulture. You know, they're popular choices um, for people to put in their gardens and there's lots of hybrids and, you know, ones with like different coloured flowers that you can get. And so there's been quite a lot of work in terms of breeding um, for those purposes, you know, um, and breeding for disease resistance and um, desirable floral characteristics. So that's something else a genome can um, help facilitate. Coming up after the break, Steph explains how she assembled the Waratah's genome and why it's like doing a painting. You'll also find out what junk DNA is and whether an onion or the human genome has more base pairs. Now that we can, you know, we've got, we've got an idea of what species you've worked with. You painted a beautiful picture of that because um, we have to use our imagination a bit with a podcast, um, unless people know exactly what you're talking about. Um, what, what, what exactly is, you know, sequencing a genome? And you've you've talked about it like putting together a puzzle without a picture on the box. Can you kind of? I know that's really hard to, you know, go through exactly all those steps and everything but just kind of what it what it means in in essence as a beginning yeah sure so maybe i'll start with explaining what a genome actually is so a organism's genome is the complete set of genetic information that it needs to develop grow and survive and plants animals fungi 
are all made of DNA and that consists of base pairs, letters if you will, and each of those has a specific chemical structure. Now what we're doing when we're sequencing the genome is trying to figure out what order the, do those bases go in in that organism. Um, and with um, species where we don't have a reference genome already, we don't have some prior bit of information to go off, we need to do de novo genome assembly, which is what we've done here with the um, Waratah. So basically, um, we get the Waratah DNA, we sequence it, uh, we sequence many copies of it, um, and then we need to basically join these little bits of the genome together. And we do that by using um, bioinformatics tools on powerful computers to look at overlaps, which basically, it's like fitting pieces of a jigsaw together. And because it's de novo genome assembly and not reference guided, we don't have an idea of what the end result might look like. It's like you don't have the picture on the front of the puzzle box, which makes things a bit complicated. Um, but yeah, definitely we have all these bioinformatic tools that we can use to put together this puzzle that is the Waratah genome. I mean, I can't even imagine like, <laughs> You know, what does that even like look like to you on a screen? Is it literally just like TGAC? Like That's what the bits of the sequencing look like. However, there's so much data, there's probably billions and billions of pieces that we can't, we don't visualize it at that stage as the letters because it would probably just crash your computer. So in terms of getting started with assembly, what we do is input these sequences these billions of reads into a bioinformatics tool. So we here we use the assembler called NECAT. Um, there are many on the market and often, uh, like we did with the Waratah, you'll try many different assemblers to see what's the one that works best for your data. And you can kind of decide that on how complete is the thing that comes out of it, how complete is your genome, how contiguous is it, is it in lots of fragments or is it nice and kind of in big bits, which is what you want to see. Um, and things like that. Oh my goodness. I mean, it, it sounds tedious, but also like so exciting. It'd be so satisfying when it was done. How, how do you get to that point? Was there a moment where you put together the last bit and it just went, ding, <laughs> you've sequenced the genome. Like how, how did that final stage work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Genome is a bit like a painting. It's never really finished. And so kind of you can keep working on it, adding on steps. Um, but the way to kind of maybe tell yourself, okay, this is, this is the painting, it's done, I'm stepping away, is you can kind of compare the genome to the previous step. Did I make a measurable improvement to the genome? If I didn't, maybe try something else. But um, once kind of you're happy with how complete your genome is, how contiguous it is, then that's the time when you're like, okay, there we go, there's our reference genome. And of course, once, you know, maybe you, in the future, other researchers or yourself, you do some more sequencing and you can improve upon that genome. So, you know, just like a painting, it's never really finished. So my question, you know, like what does a sequenced genome look like? I'm just imagining like printing out <laughs> some huge, like long piece of paper or something, but how does that work? Yeah, I guess if you would, to print out all the genome, all of the 
A's, G's, C's and T's, it just fill up this library. <laughs> so we don't tend to do that. So on a computer, um, to look at a genome, it's typically in a file format called a FASTA file, and that's a text-based format which stores either the nucleotide sequence or um, peptide sequences if you're looking at proteins. So basically, if you open that in a text editor, it's a bunch of letters all in a row, a very, very long text file. In particular, the Waratah is, the genome size is about 900 megabase pairs, so that text file is 900 million letters long. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, so when you finished, and I'm doing little like quotation marks because, you know, I mean, you're, you're happy with your painting, yes. it's the first one. Mm -hmm. um, what surprised you about it? You know, what, what did it tell you? Because it's all about, you know, like cracking the code and revealing secrets. So what were some of the cool things you discovered? Yeah, so once we have our genome, um, one thing that we do is annotate it, which means to look through the genome and um, basically um, make little notes of saying, okay, here's a gene that will turn into a protein. So those are the coding regions of the genome. Um, the coding regions of genome typically only make us up a small percentage of the entire genome. The rest are non-coding elements. Um, we can also visualise genomes using things like genome browsers, which um, show, say, the genome on one track and then it has all your genes on the next track. Um, it looks a bit like a video game, actually. Mm -hmm. So the genome had 40,000 genes, which is, you know, around double, roughly, of what humans had. So that's an interesting point that um, some people have pointed out. But I'll talk about this thing called the C-value paradox. So the C-value is basically the amount of DNA in a um, haploid genome, so uh, one copy of each chromosome. And that doesn't seem to correspond strongly to the complexity of an organism. So a human genome is around three billion base pairs. An onion, guess how big that is? It's around 16 billion base pairs long. See, that's why, I'm, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that, I'm gonna ask you why, and you might not have the answer, but. Yes, it's been a, you know, debate that's gone on for a long time in biology. Um, and yeah, so, you know, there's been talk about, you know, junk DNA, why is this all this stuff in the DNA? But now we, we know that a lot of those, um, so-called non-coding regions are important and serve regulatory functions so they're important in the genome as well like one of the biggest genomes is this rare Japanese plant called Paris japonica it has around 50 times more DNA than humans do yeah but why would an onion need more like <laughs> you know what I mean it's just yeah that is really surprising to me Okay, be honest, did you guess an onion would have more base pairs than the human genome? I definitely didn't. Coming up for the final part of the show, why Waratahs need fire and how scientists can use clues in the genome to help a species survive. I understand you went and the first actual step in sequencing was getting the plant material. Yeah. Maybe describe and tell us where that came from because um, I think that's quite important. Yeah, so um, the first step, I guess, 
when you're deciding, okay, I want to sequence a genome from this particular species, well, which individual are you going to um, choose to represent that species and to basically use as a reference? So we chose an um, individual from the mountain lineage of New South Wales Waratah that was located along Toma Spur um, on land of the, uh, the Blue Mountain Botanic Gardens. Um, and we went up to that plant and had our um, container of liquid nitrogen so we could snap freeze our tissues because you need really great quality fresh tissues to be able to make um, reference genomes and get the DNA. And that plant also, we've taken a cutting from that, which is now in the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden. So we, in case that plant um, you know, perishes, we still have a copy of the uh, reference genome individual. And so that plant did get burnt in the 2019 bushfires, but fire is an important part of their life cycle. So they have this thing called a lignotuber which stores their nutrients and they can re-sprout after fire um, from that lignotuber. So that's what happened to this particular plant, which we were, we were quite relieved about. So we were able to go back to that plant and recollect after it had re-sprouted. Oh, yay, he made it. <laughs> that's good. Oh, that's really great. And yeah, you touched on the importance of having that um, plant now in our living collection, yes. which is what makes mm -hmm. a botanic garden different from just a park um, so that's really cool so what what does this mean for the conservation of, of the species now you know what can people do with this sequenced genome mm -hmm. um, you know traditionally genome sequencing you know was done on model species you know such as you know lab rats things like that and our equivalent of a lab rat in the plant world is this um, little plant called Arabidopsis that was the first plant to have its genome sequenced in 2000. Um, but because of these you know, rapid technological advances coupled with these decreasing sequencing costs, we're sequencing more and more non-model plants, such as the waratahs, um, and kind of you know, filling in this plant tree of life more and more, which is really exciting. Um, so the New South Wales waratah, it's one of around 1,700 species in Proteaceae, and the only other genome that was available in that whole plant family was the macadamia nut because of its economic importance as a crop species. So we were really excited to be able to add another one to the family that's, you know, imported in our Australian ecosystems. So now that we have this genome, this and it can bring us, you know, fundamental knowledge of the organism its organisation, its function and evolution. So, you know, we can characterise regions in the genome, for example, that could help it to be adaptable to future climates or be resistant to diseases and other challenges. Um, so, yeah, having a genome leads to so many paths for future research. You know, it's a bit like, you know, humans doing DNA tests. You figure out, you know, where are you from? Do you have this specific variant that makes you more likely to be susceptible to a specific disease and things like that? And that's the same thing kind of we're doing with this plant and um, understanding um, more about it so we can, you know, sequencing it to help pave its path so it can persist in the future. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. 
Now, how awesome is Steph's job, huh? If you want to know more about the Waratah genome sequencing research she led, head to the Stories section of the Gardens website. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star rating and a review. It helps more people find Branch Out to discover the surprising world of plants. Next week is another Fast Flora Facts episode, where I share the most interesting bite-sized chunks of research, stories, and just downright cool facts about everything to do with plants. Here's a little preview. What if the star at the centre of our solar system, Earth's sun, or a sun around a different planet, emitted a different colour of light? Would chlorophyll's green pigment still be the best for the light harvesting job? Or would plants be a different colour? To get every Branch Out episode, make sure you hit subscribe on your podcast app or follow if you're listening on Spotify. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and this episode of Branch Out was produced by Dan Butler.